Hello, this is Gail. I'm the duty manager at the CCA. You are listening to our podcast on Sunny Govan Radio. I'm Gareth Caval, your host, and you are listening to the CCA podcast. For March, we have four guests. Abby tells us about the Seed Library, an exciting collaborative project that has a distinctive location on the first floor of the CCA. Martin from II Books, the independent bookshop based in the CCA's foyer, talks book selling as an art project. Sana and Matt arrive to preview the Glasgow Short Film Festival. And we conclude with Southern Exposure's curator Kate looking at films from New Zealand. On the first floor of the CCA, there is an interesting little box, the Seed Library. My guest today is somebody who is involved with the Seed Library. I'm not quite sure what its relationship to the CCA is or how it goes. So, first of all, would you mind introducing yourself? Uh, hello, my name is Abby Mordenton and I'm from Glasgow Community Food Network. And what's your role within the Seed Library? Okay, so um, the Seed Library is a collaborative project between Glasgow Community Food Network and the CCA. Uh, and it started last year. Um, for, the, for Glasgow Community Food Network, it started in January. Um, I'm not sure when it started for the CCA, and it came on the back of an artist residency. But essentially, as two separate organisations, we started developing our own seed library projects, completely independent of each other and without knowing um, that the other, the other was, was pursuing the same, the same idea. Um, the GCFN plan was to run a series of seed saving workshops in community growing spaces throughout 2019 and to work with the growers that came along to those, those workshops to co-design the seed library and think about what a Glasgow seed library would look like in practice. And I think it was in maybe May or June last year that I was contacted by Ainsley, um, who was a curator at the CCA at that point. She's now, now left and moved to, moved to Sky, I believe. And she contacted me and said, uh, would I be able to come and run an introduction to seed saving uh, as part of the launch of the CCA Glasgow Seed Library? And I was like, oh, a seed library. That's interesting. We're doing a seed library. And I asked her what growers they were engaging with. And she said that they were not engaging with any growers. It was on the back of this, this artist residency that was about plants and growing and blah, blah, blah. So initial reaction was, was kind of like, hmm, how do we kind of bring these two concepts together? And then thought, well, why not do exactly that? We hadn't really got very far in the conversations at, at GCFM with the growers around what the seed library would look like. I think we were thinking it would actually be quite virtual and the different parts of it would be based in different community growing spaces or different allotments around the city. But actually, there's a lot of logic to having a central location. So I came and ran the workshop, and we decided at that point to, to like I say, merge these two, two different projects so that the Glasgow Community Food Network would be responsible for engaging with growers and bringing the, the community of gardeners and so forth, which is a massive, thriving network of people uh, around the city, um, into the CCA, and CCA would actually host the library. Uh, so my role specifically is it's a kind of coordinating uh, role, but I do that alongside um, other other kind of members of the seed library coordinating group. So we're it's very, I'm not in charge. <laughs> Just it's a collective it's a collective project. Um, so we're kind of organising events to promote the seed library, to bring people in, but also to, to take it out and looking what what other kind of projects we can we can kind of have off the back of that. One of the things is that people can access the seeds directly by coming into the CCA. Is, is that an important thing within the seed library? It, it is about borrowing and bringing them back. How do people go about borrowing and bringing back seeds? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, so 
Uh, it started off, I believe, when Ainsley bought uh, about 400 quid's worth of seeds from uh, a, a company called the Seed Cooperative. Uh, and they are based in, um, in Suffolk, I believe, and they, uh, they, they use um, open pollinated seeds only. So that is seeds that have been pollinated by insect or wind or self-pollinated and are not bred uh, or artificially kind of stimulated in, in lab conditions, which is where a lot of our seeds come from. And they're UK-based seed stock uh, for, the, for the most part, some are from Germany and the Netherlands. So the seeds were placed in the, in the cabinet in, in different jars uh, that sort of tied in with the, the names or the varieties or sometimes the family groups of the vegetables. It is mostly vegetables as well. There's then there's two sheets. There's a signing out sheet and a signing in sheet. And the concept really is that people, growers, will borrow some seeds, take those seeds, grow the crops, and then harvest the seeds and bring some of those seeds back, maybe keeping some for themselves uh, for future future years. But the idea is to grow the, the kind of seed library stock in, in this way. So we have this signing out sheets. People can write in what they've taken, how much of it they've taken, uh, where they're taking it to. However, because of GDPR, we couldn't put any kind of contact detail information on these sheets. So for the whole of the last year, lots of seeds have gone out, but we essentially have no way currently of tracking where they've gone. And as you say, it is in an open, accessible, publicly accessible location, and that is important. We don't want it to be kind of, oh, you can only use a seed library at specific times for specific, specific events. <clears throat> so it's pretty important that it's publicly accessible. However, we um, have yet to configure a system, I suppose, where, where we're keeping track of, of what's gone uh, and where it's gone so that we can get in touch with those people and say, here, have you got any seeds to bring back? Otherwise, we're in grave danger of the seed library stock disappearing and nothing actually coming back in. Um, so last year, to kind of combat this in October, at uh, a time of the Document Film Festival that was at the CCA, we held a sort of mass seed deposit event, um, which um, some people find quite funny, I'm not sure why. <laughs> so we showed a film called Mothers of the Land, which was set in Peru, based in Peru, and followed the story of Peruvian peasant farmers, essentially, most of them women, who... Um, do a lot of cooperative work and they have big seed fairs for land rights and seed sovereignty and food sovereignty big topics out there uh, lots of small farmers and most of the food is grown by, by small farmers can i pause you there and ask what is food sovereignty what does that mean mm. food sovereignty is a term that was coined in i think 1996 and endorsed um, just a few years ago at um uh, the Nieleni, um sort of gathering which is, uh, it's, it was in hungary i believe could get, I could have that slightly wrong. <laughs> um, but essentially, it was, it was a, a term coined by La Via Campesina. Uh, La Via Campesina is a global movement of peasant farmers and land workers um, all over the world. And the UK branch of that is called the Land Workers Alliance. Uh, land Workers Alliance members tend to be people who are involved in market gardening, small-scale ecological farming, forestry and woodland work, sustainable forestry and woodland work. And the definition of food sovereignty is that everyone should have the right to healthy, affordable, culturally appropriate food that has been ecologically grown and sustainably produced, and that people should have the right to define their own means and methods of production. So it's got quite, quite unionist in some ways, as they like season the means of production, but making sure that those means of production are ecological, sustainable and benefit the humans that are working in that system. 
So it's part of, essentially, it's, it's a kind of movement to, to kind of create a more sustainable global food system, which we essentially don't have at the moment. And the Seed Library is obviously a manifestation of that kind very of much, ethos. Yeah. Very much so, very much so, yeah, yeah. So, as I said, the, the Peruvian film, Mothers of the Land, very much ties up with food, with food sovereignty, sea sovereignty and land rights. Also touched on how climate change is affecting some of their, their food production. Rewind a little bit back to October. <laughs> we had this event, the Seed Deposit event. Uh, we, we went from watching the film to moving up to the, the club room uh, at the CCA, uh, where we had um, a really fun session. Uh, lots of different growers had brought different seeds along. And, uh, and we spent about two hours sorting them, cleaning them, putting them in little envelopes, writing things on them, putting them in the jars, cataloguing them up a little bit. And basically topping up the, the sort of the supply of the seeds in the seed library. So to date, that's the only way really that, that we've kind of managed to, to replenish the seed stock. I don't think anybody else has brought seeds back in, but lots and lots of seeds have gone out. So this year, we're really hoping to, uh, to kind of put in place a system where, where we can make sure the seeds are coming back in. Um, but also to try and uh, promote the seed library quite a lot more so that people know that it's there not just for taking seeds out, but also for returning them. You talked a bit about events. Is that something that's a major part of your work? Yeah, totally. They're really important. I mean, how, how else do you kind of spread the word and, and make it seem exciting to people? Mm-hmm. So seed libraries are not a, not a unique concept, as, as you've probably gathered. Uh, and away down in the, the south-east in Brighton, uh, a number of years ago, uh, a group of people started a movement called Seedy Sundays, which is a fantastic name. And the idea behind Seedy Sundays was to have a, a big seed swap and a, and a kind of lots of associated chat about, about kind of um, food sovereignty, land rights and seed sovereignty that we've also talked about. And there were monthly, monthly events to try and kind of raise awareness about, about, sort of, you know, about these kind of issues, but also to stimulate the, the seed library work that was going on down there. CD Sundays have subsequently spread across the across the country. So we're trying to bring that to to, um, to Glasgow now. We're kicking that off uh, on the twenty first of March with actually a CD Saturday, <laughs> which is close, <laughs> um, and that's going to be hosted by North Glasgow Community Food Initiative up in Milton near the Milton Community Garden and Church Hall just next door. Uh, and the idea behind that, behind that event is to have seed swaps, seed, seed saving workshops. We'll probably do some, some short, short film screenings, that kind of thing, uh, and bring in different people who can sort of build, build the profile, raise awareness and promote the seed library work. The official kind of 2020 launch event is in April, on April the 2nd, so shortly after that, that last event, 21st of March, that's 20, 2nd of April, which is, uh, what day is that? That's a Thursday. Um, that's going to be 3 till 8pm at the CCA. And, and again, that will include um, seed-saving demonstrations, seed-saving sort of short, short film screenings, workshops, and an opportunity for people to kind of share any seeds that they have saved from the previous year, donate those to the library, and, and to, start, to start the withdrawals, you know, to kind of like... Here. here, now the seed library is open for 2020, officially speaking open, so that you can cut, start, start gathering your seeds and growing them and bringing them back for this year. Well, it's worth saying that the seed library is on the first floor of the CCA. People can access it quite easily. When they access it, is there support for the actual process? Because if I'm getting excited about getting some seeds, <laughs> but I'm just going to throw them on the ground. I need mm. a little bit more support there. Is there a way of finding out how to look after those seeds and get them to grow? Well, I mean, there's millions of information available on the internet, but short answer is not yet. So there is a small collective um, who um, who are kind of... We're collectively responsible for, for kind of 
managing the seed library. So those those people are well, myself and uh, Rowan, who's um, based here at the CCA. We've got Richie, uh, who's a freelance um, community gardener. Uh, he works a bit with North South Coast Community Food Initiative and a bit up in Castle Milk. Uh, Vicky, she's from Woodlands Community Growing Project. Uh, she's the main community main gardener there. We've got members of Growl, which is the Glasgow Regional Outdoor Wildlife Learning uh, Initiative. So they're, they're they're kind of they do a lot of forest school kind of stuff, but they they want to do a, a sort of school seed library project. Uh, Camillo, he works for TCV, the Conservation Volunteers, but he's uh, really interested in forest gardening, that kind of thing. Um, and Judy um, from Glasgow Allotments Forum, um, she's also she also sort of is part of this group. So we're a whole we're a wee collective. Um, and at the last meeting, we have monthly meetings at the moment. And at the last meeting, we decided that uh, we would indeed put put up some like how to grow things, basic instructions and where you can find more information uh, on how to grow things. Um, uh, there's, some, there's some reference books, I believe, with the Seed Library now. There should be by now anyway. Uh, and some other basic handouts and leaflets. Obviously, um, it's a very limited space. It's a small cabinet. It's only, what, like a metre wide, really, and about a metre and a half high. It's not, it's not a big space, and it doesn't have much surplus room around it either. It's, it's got doors either side of it, so we don't have much room to put additional information. That might change in the future, um, especially if the seed library expands and we've got like more, like more seeds than we have capacity for. Um, but yeah, at time of writing, there's, there's nowhere at here at the CCA to but find there is information. Online. I think that's worth saying that there's probably plenty of YouTube instruction videos. Millions, millions. And also, you know, some of these projects that I just mentioned, the people that are related, connected to these projects and more. I mean, through Glasgow Community Food Network, you can get in touch with uh, at least like 90 different community growing projects across the city. So there's different community gardens um, who do different types of food education. For example, Urban Roots, based on the south side. They have regular gardening uh, groups that you can come along and just learn on the job kind of thing. Uh, or they run courses and workshops. Woodlands Community Garden, similar kind of setup. Um, Shelton Community Growing Projects, Concrete Garden in, in Possel. And there's, there's loads, they're everywhere. They're all over Glasgow. So there's lots of different projects and organisations that people can engage with where they can go on courses uh, or, or drop in as a volunteer and, and, and learn how to grow. Um, and there's also, as I mentioned, Glasgow Allotments Forum. And they, um, as the name would suggest, are the sort of collective umbrella organisation for managing allotments across the city. Uh, so if you were to get your name on an allotment list, you would find the allotment community that you had um, become part of was a, uh, a huge source of information. Um, from people who have got decades experience of growing vegetables. Wonderful stuff. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to come and talk today. I'm very encouraged to go down and pick a few seeds myself. Is there a particular time of year, though, that's a good idea to start planting things? Spring. Spring, which is why we're, 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 we're having the launch date on the 2nd of April. So, yes, yeah. So, so you get, get going in spring, March to April, and then you could expect to be saving your seeds in, well, September, October, into November a bit. Wonderful stuff, thank you so much. No worries, good luck. <laughs> Quite 
often when I talk about familiar faces in the CCA or cultural tenants, they're not always public facing. However, my next guest today certainly is right in the foyer of the CCA from II Books. Welcome. Would you mind introducing yourself, first of all? Uh, yes, um, my name is Martin Vincent um, and I run II Books, which is based, as you say, in the foyer. Right, front and centre, really, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, front and slightly to the right. <laughs> Have you been in the CCA for long? Uh, yeah, we've been here for um, more than 10 years, actually. We set up, um, it was meant to be a temporary bookshop for uh, the GI Festival, uh, it, just in the foyer, and we just ended up staying and they've not been able to get rid of us. That origins in the GI Festival, does that give us a clue to what kind of books can be found in II Books? Uh, yeah, totally, yeah. I mean, I kind of thought of it as a, an art project in a way, uh, which uh, gives you a lot of leeway. Um, so it's, it's art books, and one way I've, I've expressed it is that it's, books that artists should read and that kind of encompasses a huge range of things actually. And has that changed much over the 10 years in terms of what you're encouraging artists when they come in to read? Um, I guess it has changed. I mean we kind of started out as an artist bookshop getting a lot of art books in, getting a lot of books about artists Um, and we find that we don't sell huge numbers of those. Um, we do sell much more critical theory, we sell political stuff, we sell radical books, uh, much more of that stuff. Um, it's stuff that people want to read much more. If you're looking for information on a particular artist, we might have a book about their work, but there's actually not many people who are looking for that. So We still have lots of books by artists, but a lot of them we've had for quite a long time now. And they're just waiting for the perfect person to come in. Uh, they are, and that does happen. I mean, people will come in and buy a book that's been on the shelves literally for like eight years, and they'll, it'll be the book that they wanted. Now, I also noticed that you do uh, displays in the front of the building. Are they, are they rotated around any particular themes? Uh, they're not, and then they really should be. Um, yeah, it, it's kind of um, made up on the hoof just with the idea that uh, we need to do something different in the window. Um, there was something around Pride, though. I seem to remember you had a, a Pride display. Uh, yeah, I mean, often if there's something going on in the city that's, that's interesting, and uh, because uh, my business partner, Satmar Agarwal, um, is also uh, closely involved with uh, Extinction Rebellion, and she runs the kind of the families section of that, the We Rebellion. So um, we sometimes have stuff related to that, which mm-hmm. we, we put in the window. Um, our children make... Uh, placards and banners to go on marches and what often happens is that at the end of the march I bring them back here and what am I going to do with these? I know, I'll put them in the window, they'll look good I've noticed there are quite a lot of interesting children's books as well, is that something you've always done? Uh, started doing that because I, I had children um, and I think it was to do with uh, a kind of a lack of diversity in general children's books that you find in bookshops and so we decided because my children have brown skin that we would only have books where the central character the central protagonist is not white and able-bodied and that kind of because we've only got a small space you really need some kind of criteria you can't just have general children's books so that seemed like a useful one to have so that my children can have role models in the books that they read which who look like them 
and hopefully lots of other people too. I mean, that's one of the things that gives such a strong identity, I think, to it as a bookshop. There's the radical political books there, there's the artist books, there's these distinctive young people's books as well, and magazines, of course, as well. Is there any particular criteria to the magazines that you put out on the shelves? Um, the magazines, again, we have a lot of political magazines, we have art magazines, and try not to venture too much into style and fashion because if you start doing that, there's so many more magazines and then the floodgates would open. So um, kind of keep it under control. But there's a huge magazine culture at the moment and we can't cater to the whole area of magazines that exists in the world. Um, if they're published in Glasgow, then we're more likely, or in Scotland in general, more likely to carry books and magazines, actually. I'm quite interested in... You said that it started as part of GI and it was a kind of art project. Is that still your attitude towards it? Um, yeah, I think it is. I think that's... I mean, I, I know very little about retail, um, which probably shows if you look in the bookshop. Um, so the way I can think about it is, is to think, think about what I would want and how I want it to represent the world. Um, so... In a way, it's a, I, I don't like to use the word curated because it's that's so overused now, it's so abused, it's, it hardly means anything. Um, uh, but in, in a way, it is kind of an art project. Mm -hmm. And being in the CCA, I guess you were invited here, first of all, then, to do it? Um, I think we asked, I can't remember. I think I might have asked Francis, who said, can we set up a bookshop? Um, we, we, had a, we had a, previously we had a shop um, in... Uh, in the Brigate when that was Glasgow Sculpture Studios and then that closed down and they moved out of there. And so we moved out of there and I think it was shortly after that um, I think I, I suggested that we, we open up in, in the CCA. And because of the history of the CCA I think it's a, it's a good fit as well because if you go back through the, the old days and the, uh, the Third Eye Centre and the place's origins as a kind of centre for radicalism and centre for experimental things then... I think the CCA like us having here because they recognise that we recognise that history. Mm -hmm. It certainly fits in very nicely, I think, in terms of the kind of books or the kind of atmosphere you have in the bookshop. Now, it's not just about selling books, though. You, you do have events every so often. I, I seem to remember you had Bill Drummond came to visit not that long ago, which uh, is quite an interesting one. Yeah, no, that was good. Well, I, I mean, I met Bill Drummond many years ago. I interviewed him for a magazine um, when he did a thing in, in Manchester. And... Amazingly, he'd been aware of a band that I'd been in in Manchester years before that, so uh, which was quite pleasing. Um, and I've met him a couple of times since on various occasions by accident. And he was launching a book which we which he'd done with uh, Noi Riki in uh, Edinburgh. And the idea of the book was that they would only sell it at events where they delivered the book. Um, so he drove up from where he lives in. Suffolk, I think, um, with a, a van load of books, did an event in Edinburgh, sold a box of books there, did an event over here. He just came in, he sat in the shop with a box of books um, and he chatted a bit to people who turned up, signed some books and then went away again. It was just like, it was a, it was a, it was a delivery, it was a drop-off, it wasn't kind of formal, but it was, it was just a chat, but because he's Bill Drummond, he likes to talk, so it kind of became an event. 
I can't really answer if that's a typical kind of event that you would have in there because that is very much a one-off and it's very much a, a Bill Drummond type experience. Mm. But are events part of your profile in your programmes you put things on? Um, we, we haven't done a lot of events recently and we, we used to do more in the past. I think um, uh, I, I kind of, I never know how an event should be pitched. So I'm, and because of the nature of the space we have, it's, it's quite difficult to do events actually in the bookshop. Yeah. We're very small. And doing events in the foyer kind of works sometimes. It's a, it's a space that people are walking through, so you have to find out what else is on in the building and not be getting in people's way. Um, but we've done book launches, we've done performances. We've um, often, it's people asking, can I do something? And if it seems to work and might fit, then I'll say yes. Have you noticed any particular trends in terms of the books that people are interested in the last few years? Because I've certainly noticed that the interests of artists have been shifting. Perhaps over to identity questions is quite a big thing at the moment. Have you seen that reflected in the books that people are interested in trying to get hold of? Yeah, I think I have, yeah. And, and yeah, exactly what you're saying. And also because that's books that the books that are being published at the moment as well are, are around those issues. And and people are reading them, so it kind of goes together. It's hard to know which one's driving the other one, but when something becomes part of the general discussion that people are talking about, then the books which are feeding into that and addressing that are, are very much uh, more likely to be things that people are buying and reading. And do you get many people coming down from the art school? Because I would have thought they're not too far away, and you've certainly got the books there for them, the critical <laughs> theory books are out. Um, yeah, I think we do. It's always hard to tell. Um, yeah, there's a few. I mean, a lot of art students don't really have any money. Um, and this is, this is one of our problems. If, uh, if you're catering to artists and art students, you're basically you're dealing with people who don't really have much disposable income, which is a bit of a problem when you're running a shop. Um, so we do get a lot of people coming in and they do ask you how much the book costs and you tell them and you say, OK, well, I might have to come back for that. And I say, well, go into the library to order one if you can't afford to buy it off us, you know. Um, and the other thing that happens is that people come in with their publications that they want us to sell. And that's uh, usually follows the same pattern. People will come into the bookshop and look around a bit and then say, how do I, what would I, who do I, do you? And <laughs> show me your book, yes. Do, do, do you have a particular remit to find those books that are being made in Glasgow? Um, generally they come to us um, and that's usually enough because like I say because of the size of the space so um, I mean we have mainly have a, a yes policy you know if someone comes in I say well give me three copies and we'll see what happens with it and sometimes we sell lots and sometimes we sell one or two you know yeah. It, it is a bijou space, I think, is the best way to describe it. So <laughs> yeah. it's not as if, and it's not part of a big chain, is it? It's not a secret II books all up and down the country. It's not, no. People do ask that as well. It says, is this your whole... I mean, do you have another big shop? So, no, that's it, yeah. But, I mean, that works very well in terms of the CCA's identity, the, the way in which the CCA is interested in the kind of DIY ethos and things. It's sort of specialised mm. as well. And being part of the fabric of the building in many ways, because you're right there up at the front... What, what kind of got you to take this on as an artist project back in the day? What is it that keeps you in bookselling? Because you said you didn't know much about retail, so obviously that's not where the ambition came from. Yeah, it was kind of accidental. Um, I used to live in Manchester, and when I was there, I was like running galleries and doing like artist-run projects and that kind of thing. And then I moved up to Glasgow, and there was lots of that going on. There was really no need for someone else to start doing that. But when I moved here, there really wasn't a bookshop. 
and I'd published, we'd done a bit of publishing in Manchester and I still had some money left over so we published a couple of things when I got to Glasgow and it seemed like opening a bookshop would be a, a thing to try. So uh, that's what I did. And, and do you still enjoy it ten years later? Uh, yeah, enjoy it. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I mean, I, there's, there's lots of things about it I enjoy, and I sometimes forget that I enjoy it. But it's just really, sometimes. But then you go into like a, a big chain, and you look round, and you find like they've got one or two of the books that we've got, and you're really pleased to see them there. And you think, well, most of the books we have in my shop, I'm really pleased to see them there. So that's mm-hmm. that's kind of re- rewarding itself sometimes. And it's certainly been a place where you've been able to develop your own very distinctive identity and express yourself through the shop in many ways. So I see it as an artist project. I can see how that still feeds into what you do. Um, yeah, I guess so. It's, it's hard when you're actually doing it to kind of identify that too much and be clear about what it looks like from the outside. I really don't have much idea. But And people say all sorts of things which don't always make sense to me about what, what they think of it. Mm-hmm. But... Yeah, I, it's uh, it's certainly individual, but it's it's kind of going to be because it's uh, it's a small space, and I'm not um, selling mass market paperbacks, so it's got to be specialised in some way. I, I just wonder as well if you moved away from the CCA, where else you could take that particular II Books brand identity? I don't like the word brand identity, <laughs> but yeah, well, I'm, I'm, I've I've been impressed. I mean, a few other places. Have, I mean, obviously, other shops have opened since we've been here, which is which is great because it really helps the city. You know that. Um, so uh, there's, um, I mean, Good Press are open on the other side of town. They've been going for I think seven years now. And they're onto their third space, and they cover a lot. A, a section of what we do is overlaps with what they do, and then they cover much more of. The other areas that we don't and then there's um, Category A's Books in Southside has opened up and they're doing very well which is really good that someone's been able to open an independent bookshop as a business and just be in a shop and not be in an art centre where there's an audience mm-hmm. and actually make, make that work so that's, that's pretty good so it does seem like I sometimes think yeah it'd be nice to have my own space because then it kind of be easy to do events, it'd be easy to do certain things, but you wouldn't have all the people that come to the CCA, so there's, there's two different sides to that, but it would be possible. Well, speaking of that, you're still at the CCA now, mm-hmm. and you've been there, and quite a fixture. You're, you're open Wednesday to Saturday, is that right? Yeah, yeah. And what time right. do you open? Uh, we're open from 11 till 6, which is yeah, the same hours as the gallery spaces in the CCA. Yeah, it's quite a nice fit between yeah. the two there. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for coming to talk today. So it's a pleasure to get you up here, and I see you every day whenever I come in, so it's <laughs> nice to actually sit down and spend a bit of time talking about yeah, it. Yeah, well, thanks for asking me, yeah. I'm Ailsa, I'm the Head of Operations at CCA. You're listening to the CCA Podcasts on Sunny Govan. And for my next guest today, we are going to talk about short films. Every month we have something about cinema and this is a particular festival that's been around for a while. Now I have two people here so I'm going to ask them to introduce themselves. Hello, my name is Matt Lloyd and I'm the Director of Glasgow Short Film Festival. I'm Sunny Hull, I'm the Co-Director of GSFF. Wonderful stuff. Now, I know that the festival has been going for a few years. Can you tell me a little bit about the history of it? Because I know it's evolved and changed, and this is a big year for you as well. Uh, yeah, for a start, it's the 13th year, which is lucky for some. Um, it's been going since 2008. Uh, it started life actually as a kind of a, 
collaboration between CCA and um, and and GFT. It was a, a, a kind of a, a short film weekend at Glasgow Film Festival, and and then gradually, organically, over the years, it it grew into uh, a longer weekend. It became a short film festival. It grew beyond the dates of the main uh, film festival. So uh, for a while, we were. Uh, it was a week before, and, and now it's moved to March. So it's a completely distinct event. So this year, um, we so we've always so we've always been part of Glasgow Film, um, and then last year we decided we were going to go independent. So kind of left left the mothership and are now an independent charitable organisation. Um, so that's been quite an exciting change, and will hopefully open up quite a lot in the future as well. What was it that made you decide to go independent? Because I remember <laughs> just about the years when you were part of the Glasgow Film Festival and you gradually got this new identity, I guess, that's separate. Is it a big decision to go independent? Uh, yes, it is a huge decision, but it feels like a natural move. I mean, it, you know, we, we are, it is a distinct event from, from the main festival. <laughs> it's all great. We've got really swanky new offices with Forest of Black, who we work with as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think it gives us a bit more freedom, but also we still work really closely with GFT on a lot of things, so it doesn't, like, there's still a good working relationship with them. We keep screening stuff in their venues, it just means that we are more our own thing and are able to focus a bit more on long-term, year-round activity as well. I'm quite interested in getting a little bit more of an understanding of what the vision is, because short films, well, that can cover quite a lot of areas, mm-hmm. so... How do you approach being a short film festival? What is the mission statement, if you like? Yeah, short films, it's a tricky one because I think people often have quite a fixed notion of what short film is, and um, which you know, is a sort of a calling card mini feature for, for, for people kind of progressing to the next stage in their career. And actually, I think short film's better defined by what it isn't, which is you know, a commercial, commercially lengthed uh, feature film that will slot into a... A, a cinema schedule so a short film for us can be anything uh, in, in duration it can be anything up to 50 minutes 5 minutes um, and we usually break that rule every year anyway and show some longer work but really we're interested in films which are kind of exploring the boundaries of cinematic language and are experimenting on some level we, we, we show fiction documentary animation an artist moving image and we, we show them all together in, in mixed programs but across all these forms, we're looking for some degree of experimentation with, with narrative, with storytelling, with, with form. And, you know, we, we're particularly interested in work whose ambition maybe outstretches its resources. And, you know, we, we, we kind of like heroic failures. And, yeah, just work that doesn't really fit into any specific mm-hmm. category or distinction, you know, that, that lives in that grey area between the commercial world of film and visual art, I suppose, which is a very big grey area, you know, which we find quite interesting. And we like to see how all these different types of film play off each other in a programme. Yeah, and I think also in terms of being Scotland's main short film festival, that a lot of what we do is also supporting local talent, which is, I think, a large part of our remit in terms of our Scottish competition and making sure that we... You know, we show as much, as broad a spectrum of new work that is being made locally. Yeah, it's 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 sometimes kind of almost two competing aims of the festival, which is um, supporting of of new emerging talent in both in Scotland and internationally, but then also this 
celebration of short film as an art form in its own right. Uh, and sometimes, you know, the most interesting short form work can kind of go against the grain of that of that kind of talent development, you know, career progression form of filmmaking. So yeah, so it's an interesting kind of line to to, to walk between those those two um, aspects of of what we're doing. In terms of where we are internationally, we're part of kind of a network of short film festivals around the world. Um, and essentially, we're, we're really interested in placing new Scottish work within an international context. Um, you know, there's, there's no such thing as a Scottish film industry um, without some form of collaboration with, with the wider uh, film industry. And that's demonstrated, um, you know, by, for example, the work of um, Sigma Films, probably the most successful production company in, in, in Scotland, who... Um, who've always worked in collaboration with, with international partners. Um, so we think it's really important to, to celebrate the most interesting new Scottish work in a, in a competition showcase, but to place it alongside what we think is the most interna uh, interesting international work at the same time, and to bring as many of those filmmakers to Glasgow for the festival as possible. And you know, by doing so, hopefully you're creating a dialogue between Scottish and international work and seeing new collaborations be born. Well, moving down a little bit to the practical side mm. of things in terms of the programming for 2020, how do you approach that? Do you have strands that we can follow in, in the programming? Yeah. Um, we do. Well, we have the two core competitions. So, as I said, the international and the Scottish competition. And then we have thematic strands beyond that, which tend to kind of form organically as, as we're putting together the programme. I mean, we have some, this year we have some very specific programming strands. Uh, for example, we've invited um, Peter Taylor, who's the director of the Berwick uh, Film Festival, and uh, an artist, uh, Myrid Carton, uh, together have curated a five program focus on Northern Ireland and um, artists making work during the Troubles, which is a really exciting program, which will be taking place here at CCA. And it's a mixture of short films and features as well. I think the Scottish premiere of uh, this amazing new film called Trouble by uh, LA-based artist Maria Garnett, who traces her, her kind of estranged father, uh, who now lives in Vienna, uh, and traces back his his um, his youth growing up in in Belfast and, and finding out why he fled Belfast in in the early seventies, and then goes back to Belfast and basically kind of takes on the role of she, she plays her father in 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 modern day Belfast. It's, I mean, a really beautiful film. We have a whole strand kind of that's exploring psychogeography mm -hmm. and the derive um, that Sana can talk about. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, for that, we, well, we've got several events kind of tying in with that. There's one key one that's a live performance by these two Austrian artists, um, Robin Klengel and Leonard Mulner, who have a film that we've shown in the past that they, it's a sort of walking tour through a dystopian New York in an, in an online shooter game context and so they made a film of that they're doing they're doing a live performance of that at the festival so they perform no. live and then transmit it over to the festival is that right they perform well they've made a film but then they, they in this in in the performance they kind of use that environment um live and they walk through it and they give commentary on um the kind of urban environment and histories and impact of that like and they get festival guests involved to to kind of move through this shooter game with them which is really interesting, and there's um, we're working with uh, University of Glasgow as well, who are doing 
um, a big session kind of talking about the Deriv and the Situationist International. Oh, who, who do you have um, talking about that? Uh, David Archibald and Carl Lavery, um, um, but then they have a whole raft of speakers. It's it's paired with the the um, the launch of a new journal, um, so that a series of speakers, and and then these Austrian artists are going to speak at that event as well. Yeah. And there's films by Carl and David, and also by um, Stephen, Stephen Sutcliffe, Sutcliffe, yeah, yeah. Um, and some others. Um, and then there's, um, we've got, uh, so we, we are working with a curator, um, Natasha Ruona, um, who is doing um, two screenings called Black Spatial Imaginaries, um, which is all about relationships of black bodies in landscapes and how they're excluded and included um, from these landscapes. And that ties in with that as well. Um, yeah, so it'll be, it'll be quite a nice sort of theme running through the mm. entire programme. And then we also have kind of regular programme partners we work with, like uh, Matchbox Cine Club, uh, have got a sort of a mini focus on um, the work of Nobuhiko Obayashi, I hope I pronounced that yeah. correctly. So we'll be showing some of his early shorts. So he was kind of Japan's Steven Spielberg, basically. Um, but uh, showing some of his shorts and then hopefully some of his um, kind of psychedelic commercials that he made um but, and also his first feature Hausu, um which is just a totally kind of bonkers horror film uh, scripted by his 13 year old daughter apparently um which i mean I, I think to to people who are into that kind of stuff that it'll be a familiar film but i think it'll be great to 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 see it on the big screen now you range across the city a little bit i believe you're, you're not just in the cca you're not just in the gft you're also yes. in civic house yeah I mean, it's a quite nice, it's over the city, but it's quite a nice sort of compact geographical area <laughs> that's easy to move between. So Civic House has been our festival hub. This will be the third year of it being our festival hub. So they have a, an, an incredible vegan canteen who cater to us. <laughs> and uh, yeah, they've got a screening space and we do, we do quite a lot of events in there as well. So it's a really nice space to have. And then we're using the glue factory as well. So is that, is that for a special event, the glue factory? Because that's one that's very versatile space I'd say. Yes yeah well I mean it's just an empty shell you can do whatever you like. Um, so we have we've got the the UK premiere of a film called Felix in Wonderland a film by Marie Logier a French filmmaker which is a sort of a 45-50 minute um, portrait of the German musician Felix Kubin and it's just a really lovely fun collaboration between Felix and, and Marie and um, you know presenting both his professional and private lives, but also his imaginary life. You know, it's 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 very inventive and visually exciting and, and fun. Um, so that'll be screening at GFT, and then straight after that, Felix uh, is performing a gig at at the Glue Factory, supported by Babe, local band Babe. And I think actually the last time Felix played in Glasgow was was here at CCA as part of uh, Radio uh, Radiophonia, and that was about two and a half years ago or something. So, yeah, it's really great to have him back in Glasgow. And he's just, yeah, it's hard to kind of... Uh, I mean, it, you know, it, in the same way that we're interested in uncategorizable short films, the, I think he is, as an artist, quite uncategorizable and is constantly going off in different directions and, you know, exploring new new ways of making music. Um, so... We're not quite sure what we're, what we're going to expect from that, but mm. it'll be a lot of fun. I suppose one thing that we can expect, though, is the start and finish date. So I should ask you, <laughs> when does it start and when does it end? 
Um, it starts on the 18th of March with an opening event in GFT and then we close on the 22nd of March. And, and what's the final event? Is, it, is, it, is there a party? Uh, yes, there is a party. <laughs> we, the final event is always our, our awards screening, so it's when the jury awards and the audience awards are handed out, which will be here in CCA. And then um, afterwards we're moving it to broadcast for a closing party, which everyone is welcome to, mm -hmm. capacity permitting. <laughs> And how do we find out and get tickets? Because there's probably plenty more that we could talk about. We're running out of time now, but how would I go about getting hold of stuff? Tickets can be uh, found on our website on glasgowshort.org. Um, and you can also call up um, GFT box office. Um, and then obviously during the festival in every venue as well. Can you tell me a bit more about the opening event? So the opening is really special. Um, it's the first performance in uh, Scotland by US-based artist uh, Zia Anger. Um, it's a film. It's a, a performance called "My First Film," a kind of a, a live, expanded cinema performance, uh, in which Zia basically sits in the auditorium with a laptop and controls what the audience is seeing from her laptop. And it's a kind of part confessional, um, part part kind of um, video essay, um, part theatrical experience, exploring the first feature that she made between 2010 and 2012, having been an acclaimed short filmmaker uh, and also worked in music videos and all sorts of uh, other areas. Um, and this first feature that she made, um, it was rejected from every film festival in the world, essentially. And so um, under the bizarre algorithms of imdb.com um, it's officially abandoned or incomplete even though you know it, there is a finished film so it, this whole uh, 75 minute performance kind of explores that and uh, her experiences as a woman making films in the industry and um, and you know she shows clips from the film she, she brings in um, kind of various sort of ambient music from um, YouTube and, and she's writing text on screen the whole time commenting on this and um, it's by all accounts it's just a very funny but very emotional experience um, you know she sends little Instagram stories to people's phones around the auditorium I mean it, you know as a as a as a cinema based experience it'll be like nothing else you've you've, you've ever you've ever seen um, and she's quite like well known as well through music video work like she's worked for Jenny Val and Angel Olsen so like her music video work's quite well known hmm. um, so hopefully people sort of recognise, people who recognise her will enjoy this. And beyond that, is there any particular artist focus programme that you have as well? Yeah, we've got, um, we're quite happy about this. Um, Sorayas Prabhapan, who's um, a Thai filmmaker we've been, we've been following for a few years, um, and he does quite sort of um, funny, satirical critiques on Thai society, um, and is just a, a lovely man. Um, and he's going to come over, we're doing a focus um, in, in two programmes of his shorts, um, and he'll obviously be talking at them, and then he's also going to be on our jury. So, yeah, we're happy to welcome him. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk today. Thank it's you. been a real pleasure. Can I just check those dates one more time? <laughs> it's the 18th to the 22nd of March. Wonderful. And that's across Glasgow, I'm going to say. Yes. Thank you. Hello, I'm Guillaume, I'm Head of Finance at CCA. You're listening to a monthly podcast at Sunnygoven Radio. And for my final guest today, 
Kate has come to talk about Southern Exposure. Well, first of all, Kate, would you mind introducing yourself and telling me what you do for Southern Exposure? Okay. Uh, my name is Kate Coventry, and I am the programme producer for Southern Exposure, which is a monthly screening featuring, highlighting cinema from New Zealand, which is where I am from. So, well, I guess <laughs> uh, I guess that explains some of the inspiration for yeah. it. But, but what was it that made you feel that a monthly screening of films from New Zealand would be an important addition to what we have in the CCA? I think, um, sort of in terms of, of world cinema in New Zealand, I, I'm about to completely contradict myself, but it's vastly overshadowed by our Australian... <laughs> brethren um, and the idea was to give New Zealand cinema a platform um, when I started this which was back in 2018 sort of the Taika Waititi uh, phenomena hadn't quite kicked off to the, the degree it has now and New Zealand cinema is actually having a bit of a, a moment in the sun thanks to him and a few others but at the time there was a way to get uh, those Pacific voices heard um, both classic New Zealand cinema we have a very short cinema history. Um, the first actual sort of full-length feature was the early 70s, you know, <laughs> before it got released internationally. Um, so there's, uh, there's a lot to be drawn on, but it's sort of quite a compressed history, so it's good to be able to, to get it up on screen. So the vision is that you're trying to promote the New Zealand films. What yes. do you mean by New Zealand films? Does it mean set there? Does it mean the creative impetus comes from it? How do you define that for the uh, programme? <laughs> Broadly made by New Zealanders um, in New Zealand. So, uh, like Lee Tamahori did a Bond film, I can't remember which one off the top of my head, for example, that wouldn't get shown. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but Once Were Warriors would, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So it's very much films that are engaged with the New Zealand culture, yes, I guess, as well. with yeah. the culture. And uh, with the landscape as well. It's a huge part of New Zealand and its identity. Um, mm -hmm. And a lot of film does use that internationally as well. Like, it's used as... As location. Well, that was the other thing. Yeah. That's why I asked because it is used as a location yeah. quite often, and it has the spectacular. It really does. And, yeah. And but this is more about actually engaging with the New Zealand work and the yes. things that are coming out of it. Are there any particular films that you've shown that you feel are, are good representatives of this kind of work? Yes. Well, probably my favourite one was a film called The Inland M Inland Road. Sorry. The Inland Road, um, by Jackie Van Beek, who's actually better known as a comedian. Um, she was uh, Deacon's familiar in, in, in What We Do in the Shadows, for example, but it was her directorial debut. Um, and it is actually about a Scottish man who's married to a New Zealand woman, and they have an accident, and the girl who's part of the accident sort of joins their family. And... Um, it, I, to me, sort of encapsulates what I'm trying to do in that it, it use, plays on the landscape usually. It's a small story about big themes, if that makes sense. Um, and also the idea of an outsider coming into sort of a very established rural New Zealand community um, is also a very old New Zealand story. That's what we all did. <laughs> We're all immigrants in that country, so, yeah. Th does that so, define the kind of work that gets made in New Zealand, that notion of migration and immigration? I think it does to a degree, yes. Um, yeah, because, I mean, everybody, e even the indigenous people, even the Māori people, you know, maybe a 1,500, 2,000 years tops. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a very newly populated country, um, and I think that sort of sense of incoming, if that makes sense, is something that's quite strong throughout. 
And, and what was your own personal route into, into engaging with film? Is it something that you do generally, or was this a, yeah, an enthusiasm? Yeah, I mean, well, I, I've always been, like, even when I was a kid, going to the movies was one of my favourite things. I studied film at university. That was what my degree was in. Um, and then uh, sort of working in cinemas pretty much all my working life. Now I'm in film distribution. Mm -hmm. I'm on the other side of the film game, but I'm still, that's what I do for a living as well. Yeah. So there's a consistency there. There is, yeah. <laughs> so now you're monthly here. Yes. And what, what do you have coming up in March and April? Uh, March's screening is a film called Waru, which um, came out a couple of years ago. It's one overarching story told in eight vignettes made by eight separate Maori women filmmakers. It's great. It's, 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 a, it's a sort of the death of a child and the fallout of, of that. The child is also called waru. Waru also means eight in Maori language, so it sort of mm -hmm. all comes full circle in the end. Quite an important film, I think, in terms of New Zealand film history. It's you know, Speaking to a few filmmakers has changed their practice and the way they look at building a feature. And then following that in... April, we have a, a film called The Chills, The Triumph and Tragedy of Martin Phillips, which is, was out just last year. It's a documentary about, I don't know if you know the band The Chills, the Dunedin band yes, yeah. from back in the day. Mm -hmm. Yep. Martin Phillips, um, he's, it's sort of his, he got very sick, liver failure and stuff, and, and it's just sort of his coming back from mm -hmm. that. And also the history of The Chills. Yeah. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. That's, great, that's great quite a, within two months. That's quite a diverse range of yes. films. <laughs> yeah, we do. We do. Yeah, keep it eclectic. Mm. And, and certainly in, in the, the first of those films, there's something very experimental in the style as well. Yes, is, is that where it was influential, or was it in terms of you said it's Maori uh, directors? Yes, was that important as well? Culturally? Very much so. Very much so. And that's why I feel quite strongly that I'm very pleased to be able to give that film a mm -hmm. platform and a voice. Um, both in terms of its Māori filmmaking but in terms of its women's filmmaking mm -hmm. as well. And it is, it is very much a, a women's film. Mm -hmm. you know. well, what, so I'm going to have to ask you, what do you mean by that? How would you define it, it, it's that? A, yeah, like I said, sort of focusing on the death of a child mm -hmm. and the ramifications of that between, uh, within the community. And, it, and when I say women's film, that is told through the woman's points of view. Mm -hmm. It's... Yeah, it's not like her dad tells us the... Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, totally. I mean, I think that fits in very well with a lot of the films that come through the CCA mm -hmm. in that they're concerned with new perspectives. A woman's perspective is hardly a new perspective, yeah. culture, <laughs> but I think in terms of the stories being told and enables through film, it's pretty new. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a very contemporary concern. And in the same way that uh, the Maori filmmakers as well, that's another thing where talking to Indigenous or First Nation people, that that's something that people are just getting hold of, I think, now. Yeah, yeah, and, I mean, it's great, but, and more, we need more of it. And in New Zealand, like, there has been, um, there sort of has been, on the periphery, there's always been Indigenous filmmaking. Mm -hmm. There's a, um, a woman, Mirata Mita, I don't know if you've heard of her, but she she made a film called Patu back in the 80s about the Springbok tour and, um, of 81, which is great documentary, but she also did a lot of work with Indigenous and First Nations people in Canada, North America, um, Hawaii, places like that. Uh, so it's something that's sort of being pushed through for the last probably 30, 40 odd years, but just now is finally cresting, and it's really exciting to see that those stories do need to be heard. Yeah. I, I'm a terrible cliche in that I say you mentioned once were warriors earlier yeah. on, <laughs> which is in many ways seen as a, a pinnacle or an icon of New Zealand yeah. film. Is it representative? Um, in as much as it 
depicts a family living in an economically <laughs> challenged area mm. with an alcoholic father. Yeah. Probably. Nothing, no, in terms of Māori culture, mm. no. Except for maybe Beth's family ties in the end when she takes her babies and yeah. leaves. But other than that, no. Because it, it was one of those films that made a big impact, I think, in yeah. Europe and possibly in the States as well. But it seems to be rather problematic in its representations. People were upset. Mm. People were upset. The, the author of the book, actually, Alan Duff, um, was an old boy of the high school I went to uh -huh. and did come and give us a, a, a talk about it. Um, sort of, It's not wholly autobiographical, but there is a lot mm -hmm. of lived experience in, in the novel. And people, yeah, people were a bit... Uh, thought it was representing mm -hmm. the community badly. But I think sort of with... Those, when was it, 94-ish? Mm -hmm. Yeah. 20 plus years perspective on it. I think you can mm -hmm. look at it more in terms of it, of it socially rather than in terms of its racial or post-colonial mm. yeah. implications. I, I think there was yeah. a degree of naivety still in yeah. the 90s about how you represented people yeah. and how you gave voice to different communities. And I guess as well the violence of the drama perhaps oh. overrode other concerns at the time I think exactly maybe. exactly and I mean I, I actually rewatched it for the first time in a long time not so long ago and was <laughs> horrified all over again at just how grim mm. it, it is it's like oh but, but you but, don't just go for storytelling films you do document this is what mm. I'm putting it you don't just do fiction you put documentaries in as well is that an important yes. thing to balance I think so I mean, I'm, I'm, sort of, I'm a big fan of documentaries mm -hmm. anyway, so I would, yeah, I like to get them in as often as I can. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and actually, you know, that's probably something I should have mentioned earlier, there is quite a strong documentary thread coming mm -hmm. through with things like the Martin Phillips story, but I mean, we've had Tickled in the last few years, uh, a film called Spookers, which is great, even the Kim.com film, which we showed, that's a New Zealand production, mm -hmm. well, New Zealand Australian production about... Kim.com, <laughs> who's still there. Really? <laughs> yeah. Amazing. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, so, yeah, that sort of documentary thing does seem to be mm -hmm. quite strong. There seems to be quite a bit of money for people to make their docs. And, and is yeah. there a lot of support in New Zealand for people yeah. making films? Because, again, we're talking about the spectacular scenery and the way in which it can be a background to things. Is that something that the New Zealand state wants to support? Mm -hmm. There's a New Zealand Film Commission, which funds pretty much everything mm -hmm. that, that does come out of New Zealand. Um, yeah, it is something that the state's very much behind. It's an, it's an important economy, mm -hmm. a very important economy to the country, yeah. So it's worth mm -hmm. saying Southern Exposure comes every month. Do you know the yes. date for March and April? March is the 24th and April is the 16th, I believe. I'll just double-check that. Yes. And this how do people go about getting tickets or finding out more? On the CCA website. Uh, that, that's where all our information is. We are actually, <laughs> excitingly, getting our own website soon, but, mm -hmm. but we're not quite there yet, so all the info is on the CCA website. At the and moment. easy enough to find, so CCA yes. Films and click away. Exactly. Wonderful. Thank you so much for coming Thank in you. today. Thank you. <laughs> okay. You've been listening to the March CCA podcast. I've been your host, Gareth K. Vard, and it just remains to say thank you to Sunny Govan FN and our four guests, and of course to you for listening in. For the CCA, the podcast is produced by Julie Cathcart, publicity is by Rowan Lear, sound, editing and music by Kenny Christie.